You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today, we've got the CEO and co-founder of Lambda School, Austin Allred. And I'm super excited because I used to work in online education and I love everything about what Austin is doing. He tweets a lot of cool stuff. So follow him on Twitter, by the way. But Lambda School is a live skills-based online school that aligns the incentives of school and students, schools and students through income share agreements. I'm going to let him explain what that means in a second. A lot to uncover here. So Austin, first and foremost, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. So let's talk about Lambda School and how you even started with the idea first, because I think that's interesting. Yeah. So way back in the day, we basically said, let's take a really good code school and put it online. Then, you know, we, we did that and started asking folks, why aren't you joining Lambda School? How can we make it a better fit for you? And what we heard again and again from basically everybody we talked to is, you know, it was a financial constraint. I'm happy to pay for it, but I don't have enough money. That's why I'm going to a school so I can get a better job. So is there any way that I can pay you back once I get a job? And so we started thinking about that and like, why isn't that a thing? Why don't schools hold all the risk? Why don't students, you know, only pay if they're hired and started looking at various financial instruments that you could use to make that happen. Eventually stumbled upon kind of an experiment that Milton Friedman ran in the 50s or an essay he wrote in the 50s about income share agreements and kind of went from there. And so Lambda School is mostly built on an income share agreement. Got it. And can you describe what an income share agreement actually means, just if people are even interested in signing up? So Yeah. So for Lambda School students, it, you basically don't pay us anything unless and until you're making more than $50,000 a year. And then you pay us 17% of your income for two years at a maximum of $30,000. So basically, it says you can study at Lambda School at no upfront cost. And if it doesn't work out, you don't pay anything. If it does work out, you know you pay up to $30,000. Got it. I'm just curious, and this might be confidential. You just let me know if it's pushing too far. But what percent of people actually end up going through versus the ones that say, hey, I I can't afford, I'm not going to be able to pay the income share agreement? Almost everybody goes through it. That's the nice thing is that you you don't make any payments unless you're making more than $50,000 a year. So normally Mm -hmm. with most debt instruments, the reason people default or don't make payments is because they can't afford it and because their income isn't high enough. So this Mm -hmm. almost solves for that by definition. Got it. Okay. How how do you guys, I mean, the complexities around this, right? It's like, how do you enforce this type of stuff? How do you, if someone wants to do something like this, and I'm sure there's people that want to do an income share agreement thing, right? Like how do they even make that happen in the first place? Yeah. So now it's, it's becoming more and more standardized as time goes along. So there are companies that will do the servicing of the ISA, I'm sorry, I abbreviate income share agreement to ISA. There are companies that will do collections. So, so you can really pull most of that off of the shelf with a company like Meritas or Leaf or Vimo, that piece has been figured out for you to some degree, which wasn't true Mm -hmm. when we were first getting started. The difficult part is making the income increase happen. And that's what you should spend all of your time thinking about. Got it. I would love to hear kind of some case studies, some success stories, because you're sharing these all the time on Twitter, like, you know, X amount of people got hired today and they're working for amazing companies, right? So just so people can get a sense, what are two stories you can, one or two stories you can speak to? Oh man. Just the other day, I was talking to one of our first students who was ever hired. So he was living in central Florida when he attended Lambda School. His first job he got hired at was in Ann Arbor making, I think it was 85K. So you know, immediately his first job was making 55,000 a year more than he was before. And mm-hmm. you know, he paid us 
$30,000 over a couple of years. His second job that he took about a year and a little bit after he started the first job was making one hundred fifty. So you know, now he's making more than $100,000 a year, more than he would have. If, you know, we ran the math with him the other day and realized that, you know, A, if he were going to a university, he wouldn't have graduated even yet. So now he's up about $470,000 versus where he would have been, including university tuition and time by the time he would have graduated school. So yeah, it works really, really well. That's amazing. And you know, the other thing too, from those marketers that are listening to this right now, if you think about it, you put someone through this, they're forever going to be your ambassadors. They're forever going to be the ones that are out there championing your cause, right? And that sounds like what they're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, we've, we have every indicator from a marketer's perspective of product market fit. We have students with Lambda School tattoos. We have students that, you know, will get their entire church or their entire family signed up for Lambda School. Or, you know, we'll have one student will do Lambda School, get hired, and then their partner does Lambda School. So it's pretty wild from that perspective. We can actually track this student got hired, and then we can watch his entire neighborhood start to apply. So it's, it's pretty effective. Yeah, because they'll never stop talking about it. Yeah, I feel that way about Paul Graham and Y Combinator, right? Like the, the people who gave you a shot and to, who turned you into who you are. I think you remember them for a really long time. And I, yeah. I feel that way about Jeff Ralston and Paul Graham. So Yeah, got it. And so let's say someone wants to teach something like, I'm just going to come up with something like knitting or whatever. And they, maybe that's not the best example. Maybe like building a house. Then maybe there's an income share agreement there. Yeah. When you first started Lambda School, what was like the MVP version of this just to see if this was going to you know make it or not? Yeah, so we started with kind of a, a hybrid school where basically you could either pay up front or you could use an income share agreement. So we had in our first cohort, we had like 18 students who were on an income share agreement and like two people who had paid up front. You know, we'd found a way between me and my co-founder to you know, not take an income and make that work. And then over time, the, the ratio basically became, you know, 98% of students on an income share agreement. And we, we raised a little VC to make that happen. So the difficult thing about ISAs is they don't start coming in immediately. And when they do start coming in, it's much more slow than upfront tuition would be. You can try different ways to finance it or to borrow against ISAs or something like that. Generally speaking, you have to have some sort of data to really be able to finance it at a reasonable rate. So the, the early days are all about finding a way to stay alive and show that it actually works for your students. Got it. And you guys have been doing this for how long? We're about to hit three and a half years since our first. So clearly it's working. It is working well enough. Yeah. We're yeah. not at the point where 100% of our graduates get hired. That's what yeah. we're working on fixing right now. But yeah, it works. It works as well as any other school for sure. I bet you, Austin, if you're saying that right now, it's, it's still a pretty high percentage that are, <laughs> right? I, I have a high standard of what is possible for sure. Yeah. I want everybody to get hired and yeah. most schools don't really care. So yeah. I would hope that we, we can do a better job at that. Got it. So I, I do want to come, I want to talk about getting these students hired, but I want to talk about the student experience as well, right? So how do you make sure that Lambda School continues to stay relevant and up to date because things change so quickly? Because you guys are teaching mainly, it was a code school, you guys actually teach design and other stuff now as well, right? Well, that's one of our lessons of how to keep it really high quality. We turned off the code program for a little bit, or sorry, mm -hmm. the, the design program for a little bit. When it started working, our instinct was, well, let's start doing everything all at once, basically. 
but we hadn't built in the infrastructure to make changes across everything. So we, you know, when we have one program or two programs, we're always testing, we're always iterating, we're always making it slightly better every day. But we found that if we were doing too much and we didn't have the infrastructure built up, the experience would start to decline because we weren't able to take what we would learn in one track and apply it to all of the other tracks instantly. So now we're, we've kind of pulled back. We're just doing web development and data science right now and just in the U.S., we pulled back from our other countries that we had launched in as well. And we're building you know, systems and infrastructure with software that make it so that when you make a change once, it automatically rolls out to all the other you know, schools and all the other tracks. So that's been a learning experience for us of how to go from you know, zero to one is one thing, but one to scale is probably 10 times as difficult in education. We're preparing for that right now. Got it. Those of you that want more insight into this, I, I think um, if you just follow Austin on Twitter, he, he's, I think you've actually talked about this before where it was scaling too quickly and, you know, approaching international rollout, quote unquote, the wrong way. Right. So Austin very much builds in public. So yeah. I do want to talk about, I guess, I remember I was on the Jordan Belfort's podcast with so the Wolf of Wall Street. And then so I was talking to him about his because he has a sales training school, right? So he's using his brand. He's doing the sales training thing. And then I brought up the concept of income share agreements because I thought of you. And he's like, yeah, you know, I looked into it, but you know, there's just too many regulatory hurdles, blah, blah, blah. So you were the first one to face these, right? I mean, what are you seeing right now in the landscape? What hurdles did you face initially? And what are you seeing now? It's a giant pain. It's a short answer. I understand where Jordan is coming from. So, you know, education is regulated, at least for-profit education that is not accredited or not degree granting is regulated state by state. So every state has different regulations. Every state has different requirements. So we've had a legal team that's focused on this for almost three years now. And we have people that that's their entire job is just keep the registrations with different states up to date. And you know, some states, it will involve so much paperwork that it costs us $400 just to FedEx them the required application. It's doable. It's just every state regulates it differently. And every state, like basically, if you imagine somebody sitting down and writing up some requirements off the top of their head, that's what the regs, generally speaking, look like. So sometimes they make sense. Sometimes they don't make sense. Sometimes they fit nicely with what your school is doing. Sometimes there's a lot of you know square peg, round hole type situations, but it's tough. I empathize with Jordan. He's not wrong to say yeah. there's a lot of regulatory brouhaha that has to happen to make it work. Yeah. One of my questions was going to be like, this seems like a no brainer. Why aren't more people doing it? And I guess that's part of the reason, right? Yeah. There, there are two main reasons. The first is that schools with ISAs make less money per student right now than schools without an ISA. Why would you volunteer to make less money unless you're playing yeah. the long game of, you know, we think we can change this industry and we can make it so attractive that you know, students will opt to come here yeah. and that's how we'll win in the long run. But when you're getting started, you probably, at least the way things are built right now, you probably will lose money for some time on your ISAs. And yeah. that's just so. Would you say that's like a, probably for most people, if you're looking to ever do something like an ISA, probably like a four to five year journey of losing money to be conservative? Yeah, at a minimum. Okay, so I think the, the key takeaway here is if, if you're you're lucky enough to have some income already, maybe have a couple of businesses and you want to teach people more, you know, and you could take the pain for a while, then by all means, or, you know, you get, you get a bunch of people behind you, just like with Austin. I mean, you guys have raised over 122, correct, in funding? Yeah, that sounds right. I know it's over 120. I don't know what the exact number is. 
Yeah, we'll call yeah. it 122. There you go. I mean, but to change the world, that's what it takes, right? So I, I love that. So let's talk about getting students hired because one of the online education companies I used to, or the online education company I used to work at was all about getting students placed, right? So how are you doing that right now? Yeah, so for a long time, you know, we had, we've always had a career coaching team. Um, we've always been building tools that make it easier for a student to go out and kind of find their own job. Where we've really learned a lot in the past, honestly, in the past six months, is that we have some unique advantages that other schools do not have. And if we lean into those, we can not only de-risk the education from the student side, but we can de-risk employment from the employer side. So, you know, one of the main reasons it's difficult to get hired is because the company doesn't want to fire you six months later. That's really painful and expensive to do. And we try to get as much signal as we can from interviews, but you can only learn so much about how things are going to work out from an interview. So what we do now is we run a program called Lambda Fellows, where basically you can come to Lambda School and you can try out a student for a month and Lambda School will pay the student. And then only if you decide to hire that student, do you ever pay a penny. So if you decide to hire them, you pay Lambda School back for, you know, what our cost of hiring that student for the month. And if not, then you never pay anything. So we're doing the same thing on the employer side that we did on the student side and making it so it's not as hard or scary to hire people. And that's been working really, really well. And I'd imagine in the future, that's the way a lot of, if not most of our students get hired. That's, that's still in its infancy right now. Got it. Yeah. I mean, look, it seems like a no brainer. I guess that leads to my next point. So how are you, what kind of pushback are you getting from traditional parents? Right. Cause it, like, if I think about my, my Asian parents to be like, no, you should still go to a traditional college. You know, that's what's understood. This seems risky, you know? So how are you dealing with that? Yeah. I mean, we get that all the time. The nice thing is our incentives are so aligned and it's so transparent what you can expect that look, if you come to Lambda school and it doesn't work out, which certainly will happen. It's not that every student ever will be successful. Then you don't pay anything. We don't make any money. The only cost is your time. And that usually, like people understand that when incentives are aligned like that, it means something. It's real. Because we're not going to just do that and lose money on every student and you know, keep perpetuating that. That doesn't make any sense. So usually students get it. There's still some parents that say, well, I'm not doing anything unless there's an accredited degree on the other side. Mm. And there's not much we can do about that. You know, we'll just let time tell that tale. But yeah, I mean, we, we get 50,000 applications a month. So we're not, you know, totally optimizing to solve the, the skeptical parent side. <laughs> so what, what percent of those 50,000 are actually qualified each month? I have to look at the data. It's like, and it depends on what you mean by qualified. So we have a few different mechanisms that we look at to determine who gets in. But I, I don't know those numbers off the top of my head. I'm sure our, our admissions team does. Got it. Okay. So what has been working with you in terms of customer acquisition? I mean, I think the the word of mouth has been really strong and the offer is compelling enough that, you know, most, you don't, we didn't, up until now, we haven't had to do too much that's super special one thing that's worked really well that we're, we're actually not doing right now just because we're focused on other stuff is teaching free classes. I love teaching free classes because it brings in all the right people, right? It brings in people who are interested for the right reasons. They want to learn. It brings in people who, you know, it's, it's a very natural call to action from a marketing perspective. 
in the early days, a lot of our students came through free classes, but now that's you know not really. We'll we'll get back to that soon, but we're not running any right now. Got it. Okay, and you do have a background in marketing because I'm I'm reading here the Secret Sauce Growth Hacking Guide.、Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, my I mean I spent my career in growth marketing, whatever you want to call it. So when my daughter was sick in the hospital and we were trying to figure out how to bring in extra money, I had some blog posts that I'd written about how to get press and how to use social networks to grow your company. And it had a lot of following and you know, had a few thousand people on a waiting list for more blog posts. So I decided I needed to monetize that to pay off the hospital bills. So I had to turn it into a book that kind of goes through channel by channel. Here's how I break down and work through each channel. The book's done really well. We've sold you know north of a quarter million dollars worth of、wow. books, and we didn't go through a publisher. So that's all just you know you have to pay for the book itself, but that's it. I was hopeful to do like two thousand dollars in sales of the book, and we do that. There you go. Several times over some weeks. So, was, so if you need money, go write a really good book. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. What is the people are also always interested in attraction numbers. So what can you reveal around the company right now? Whether it's employees, growth rates, revenues, whatever you're open to share. Yeah, we've got three thousand ish students right now. Actually, right now it'll be a little bit lower than that, between twenty five hundred and three thousand. We've got. 180 full-time employees and a couple hundred more part-time. Last month we had our second month in a row of more than 100 students getting hired. We're in a good spot. There's still a lot we need to do better at and a lot we need to fix, but we're、mm -hmm. we're on the path. Got it. I love that. Congrats on that success. And I guess I'm curious too. So this is the this is the company. I mean, this is like a. We're talking. You're going to be working on this for a very long time, right? So I guess I'm asking, what are you doing to evolve as a leader, as a CEO? Like, are you in any different groups? Like, what are you doing there? Oh man, yeah. I mean, I look back at who I was and what I knew when we started, and it was a little bit embarrassing, frankly. So I have an executive coach, and I meet with the group that. Works with that coach every three weeks. We have it used to be a dinner. It's no longer a dinner. And I've also surrounded myself with executives and advisors who, you know, this is Lambda School is now the biggest company I've ever worked at, and you know I'm relatively young in my career. So you know, folks who have seen this happen, you know, they, they've seen this play a dozen times. And I, I think we hire executives that are better than us as CEOs, or we should. And so they are constantly there, helping guide me to to know, you know, what I should do, what I need to tweak, what tweets I should delete, that kind of thing.、Uh, got it. I love that. So, what do you think is helping you the most in terms of finding these executives? In the early days, it's really your investors. So your first investors. I had no understanding of what an executive was in the early days. You just Hire people, and then if they're good, we'd say, "Hey, you're, you know, sounds like you'll be an executive." And then you hired the first one, and you say, "Oh, that's what that means." You know, it's somebody with ten years of experience who magically makes all, or more than ten, fifteen, twenty years of experience, who somehow magically makes all of your problems go away. And those are nice. You like it when they're when there's somebody who can make problems go away instead of increasing the problems. So the first year usually. What often happens is your board or your investors will go to you and say, "Hey, you need a VP of X." And you're like, "Oh, well, we, we kind of have somebody on the team who can do that skill set." You know, so if it's 
hey, you need to go hire a VP of marketing. You say, oh, we have a marketer on the team. You know, they're pretty good. And they say, no, you don't understand. Let me go get you a VP of marketing or introduce you to some VPs of marketing. And then you start meeting them. And when you do, then you then it's like, that's one of the most important awakening points as a founder. They're like, oh, they're with people who are not like, not just able to do the thing, but who are really, really good and can bring in a team to solve that forever and make it just continually get better. I truly believe that one of the most important things any CEO, especially a young CEO can do is hire the right executives. And now I've got, you know, a C-suite that works with me. I've had a CTO, have a COO, uh, chief business officer, uh, people officer. They all have dozens of years more experience than I do. Got it. And so the first couple of years, you had your investors helping you, which is great because you're not going to get charged a recruiting fee, right? What does it look like now? Is there an internal recruiter? Like what helps with the executives now? Yeah, we have an internal recruiting team. The executives that we do have will reach out to their friends. Uh, in some instances, we'll work with recruiting agencies. Like that's, I think it's just a perennially difficult problem to solve. And knowing yeah. how to find and bring in executives is, you know, you'll, you'll tap every resource you've got and you'll see what works. Yep. I love it. All right. So what are, I mean, you know, we touch upon the design school and maybe pausing it for a little bit. What, what's the plan for future subjects? I would just love to know kind of what's on the roadmap. Yeah. So for 2021, we're really focused on two things. The first is placement and that's getting as close as we can to every qualified student walks into a job. We're still in the early stages of experimenting there, but that's what I think about most of my time day to day. And then the other thing is a scalable, repeatable student experience. So we've had a good student experience in the past, but it has been somewhat fragile. It's relied on the Herculean efforts of a few people. And if anything breaks, then you have a really bad experience. So we need, we need to make it more, more reliable, I would say. And once those things are there, then we can start expanding again. And until they are, then we're, you know, we're just really optimizing what we've got already. Got it. Okay. Which areas of the business frustrate you? So we talked a, bit, a little bit about the regulatory hurdles. We, we talked a little bit about the consistent experience, which you just mentioned. Is there anything else that annoys you is probably a, a more appropriate word. Annoys me. I think one of the things we're still trying to figure out is communication at a broad scale. It's, it's been pretty difficult for us. We need to move to, and I think this is true for every company, but Methods of communication that are reliable and scalable and eliminate confusion as they scale instead of increasing confusion as they scale. So there's just so much going on at the company. There's so many people working on so many different things that really the a culture that helps you keep track of and retain all of that knowledge across the company is something that we need to do better at. The other is just figuring out exactly what our organizational design ought to be. So there's some places when we have too many cooks in the kitchen, I suppose. There's some places where we should be able to solve problems faster, but we don't have the right people. A lot of what I do is thinking about organizational culture, organizational design, and how to how to make those things line up with what we need. And that's been a that's been a long learning process and I'm sure it will continue to be a learning process forever. Yeah. For sure. I was listening to this, I think it was Invest with the Best podcast with former CEO of Cisco. And he mentioned the two most important things for the company's CEO is you got culture and you got communication, which would you agree or disagree with that? A hundred percent. Cool. That's totally right. 
All right. Working towards wrapping up, you post a lot on Twitter, right? So I'm just curious for you, you know, which tech companies do you admire? Which CEOs do you admire? It could be, you know, one or the other. I mean, there's the obvious Tesla, SpaceX, Amazon. I think Amazon is probably the best company in the world at getting more out of its people than it really has any right to. Like, yeah, Amazon's just a miracle. Tesla is amazing. SpaceX is amazing. But then more locally, or I suppose more reasonably, because there only can be so many Elon Musks in the world, so many Jeff Bezos of the world. I really admire Stripe a lot. Stripe's an investor in Lambda School, and the way they run that company is just incredible. I admire GitLab a lot. The way Sid has set up that company to run and operate is pretty cool. I would say those are the two companies I think about the most when I think about who can we emulate. And then the company that I'm, I think is, a, it's getting out there more, but everybody's still sleeping on a little bit is rippling. They're going to be much bigger than anybody realizes right now. I love that. And just for everyone to know too, uh, this whole journey wasn't all sunshine and flowers, right? Maybe, maybe you want to talk about how you started out and what car you drove and where you lived while participating in Y Combinator. <laughs> Yeah, so this is actually before Y Combinator, but when I first moved to Silicon Valley, I lived in a Honda Civic. This is even before kind of my first real job in tech. Well, I taught myself to code and I taught myself enough skills to, to be dangerous and valuable. I didn't graduate from college or anything. I just knew I wanted to be a part of Silicon Valley and I knew, you know, I, I knew that's where I needed to be. I didn't know what my role was going to be in it. So yeah, I just drove out and lived in a car while I figured the rest out. And not to say that anything is figured out, but that super sucked. Honestly. Burned the ships, right? Yeah, you have to, I guess. Yeah, I still look back on that and I feel a little funny when I think about it because it was both like, I mean, the story is great and you know everybody loves having an apocryphal, like oh, I you know, did this thing and it all worked out. But at the time it super sucked and it was incredibly stressful and tiring. You know, one of the reasons I started Lambda is because that's, it affected me in such a deep way that I don't want other folks to have to go through it again. The good news for me is like, I can be totally content living in whatever house you have for me because, hey, it's, it's a house. And that's awesome. Material things don't matter to me very much because I can be so content with just a computer and a bed. But, but yeah, Love it's it. not, not necessarily something I'd recommend. It's just what I had to do. <laughs> Hey, whatever it takes, right? All right. So final two questions. What is your favorite business tool? I'm going to go with an unconventional answer to that. And that would be GitHub or GitLab and the API. So I've learned a lot over time about how you know documentation is one thing, but code is another. The strongest way that you can preserve culture and operating rigor and other stuff is like, Actually, the, the code push and review mechanism is really, really cool and really, really strong. And I think the companies that do the best use APIs as much as they use documentation. That's my favorite business tool is lines of code. Okay. What, what would be the, like a practical example of you guys using GitLab? Man, we need to do this more. But generally speaking, instead of you know writing a policy to move a student from one cohort to the next, you write a piece of code that helps them do that. And the, the nice thing about code is you can look at it, understand what it is. I mean, you should have documentation around the code, of course, but everybody understands how to change it, what the change process looks like, and what will change when you make those changes. Whereas with documentation, documentation is like, 
And so if you document your corporate policies really well, it's something that people ought to follow, but they may or may not. So I, I think code, we underestimate how powerful code is in mm. building operationally intensive businesses. Got it. And so for like a non-tech company or maybe someone that's looking to get started, I mean, just using a Zapier, right? I think you're basically, we're using APIs here, right? So same deal. Yeah. I mean, use Airtable and Zapier or something like that. Cool. Airtable is probably my favorite non-technical product. You know, I've tried to get into Airtable and the problem, like we use it for content, our content calendar, but I'm like, you know, all the other bells and whistles and stuff, I guess I I just haven't gotten too much into it. Like I end up using all these different tools, but you know, there's Rome research, there's Notion, there's all these tools, right? It's just, I never know how to like use it like a super user. And I'm assuming you know how to use it really well. So I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I do also love Rome, but I, you know, I bought a course on Rome because I was like, it's, this seems more powerful than I understand. Cause I tried using it a few times and it didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And then when I actually bought the course and saw how yeah. It was Nat Eliason's course. He's another growth guy. I was like, oh, that's how you use it. And then it became super powerful. Cool. Final question. Favorite business book? I'm going to have to say The Wright Brothers by McCulloch. It's not necessarily a business book, but the process that the Wright Brothers took and the emotions that they experienced in building the first airplane reflects exactly what I think most creative processes can and should. So I gain a lot of inspiration from that. And it's just a really, really good book. So the Wright Brothers. Love it. Well, Austin, this has been great. What is the best way for people to find you online? Probably on Twitter. I'm Austin, A-U-S-T-E-N. And I'm always there. So <laughs> Cool. Awesome. And guys, don't forget, go to lambdaschool.com. It's a no-brainer if you're looking to learn all the cool things in the world. Well, we'll start with code right now and then eventually world domination for Austin, right? So thanks so <laughs> much, right. Austin. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.